0: Our roundtable today is composed of an intriguing mixture of musicians, producers, and theorists, all of whom, from their unique perspectives, have thought deeply about how we might understand the emotional impact of music. Where do these emotional experiences arise, and are these experiences unique to each listener, or is there some universal quality to the way we all react to music? In the Helix tradition, we encourage the participants to discuss first by themselves and then among themselves whatever they think is relevant to these issues, and we'll see where the conversation takes us. Let me introduce today's participants. Um, Let me start off with Greg is a partner and senior managing engineer at Sterling Sound in New York. Uh, in New York City. For over 40 years, Mr. Calby has mastered more than 7,500 albums in various genres, including the work of rock artists such as John Lennon, Bruce Springsteen, Paul Simon, and David Byrne. In the jazz world, his credits include Miles Davis, David Sanborn, and Branford Marcellus. And in the current indie rock field, he's worked with such cutting-edge artists as Alabama Shakes and Passion Pit. Jesse Harris is an accomplished singer, songwriter, guitarist, and producer of artists all over the world. Best known for having written and played guitar on Nora Jones' breakout hit, Don't Know Why, for which he won the 2003 Grammy Award for Song of the Year. He has also had his songs recorded by numerous other artists, including Smokey Robinson, Willie Nelson and Emmylou Harris. As a solo artist, Mr. Harris has released over ten albums, including his forthcoming release entitled Born Away. Okay. Marina Korsakoff Crane is a professional pianist and scholar in music cognition. Her research is focused on emotional responses to music and on perception of melodic transformation. Her recent work on music in the brain addresses musicianship-related brain plasticity from the point of view of a music cognivist and practicing musician. She was trained initially as a pianist. Um, currently, Dr. Crane collaborates with researchers on imaging studies in perception of motion in tonal space. She is the author of two books, The Universe of Music and Music. She is the only one to talk with me. Dr. Gilbert Rose served for many years on the faculties of Yale University Medical School and the Western New England Institute for Psychoanalysis. He is the winner of the Sander Laurent Essay Award of the Psychoanalytic Association of New York and the Founders Teaching Prize of the Western New England Psychoanalytic Society. He is also and currently a member of the Gardner Program for Psychoanalysis and the Humanities at Yale University. He is currently in private practice of psychiatry and psychoanalysis in Rowatin, Connecticut. Dr. Rose is the author of several books. Including trauma and mastery in life and art, necessary illusion, art as witness, and between couch and piano, psychoanalysis, music, art, neuroscience, and the power of form, and the power of form, uh, a psychoanalytic approach to aesthetic form. First book, yes, first book. Finally, Alina Rubinstein is a psychoanalyst in private practice in New York City. She's on the faculty of the Institute for Psychoanalytic Education affiliated with the New York University Medical Center. Dr. Rubinstein was raised in a family of musicians and has played the piano for all her life. She has served as a juror for the first Four piano competitions for outstanding amateurs established in 1999 by the Van Clyburn Foundation in Fort Worth. An avid chamber of music participant, she performs in concerts several times a year. Seven years ago, Dr. Rubenstein also began studying the cello, wishing to explore non percussive techniques of producing musical sounds. This is our panel, and we'll go around, and each person will will start and talk a little bit, and then we'll talk among ourselves. Dr. Rose, well,
1: let me tell you how it all started. <laughs> Being a psychoanalyst, I can try to talk sitting up. <clears throat> I was between ten and twelve, something like that, and uh, browsing among my parents' seventy-eights, uh, I came across something which knocked me out. It was Tchaikovsky's fifth and sixth symphonies. And I didn't know what hit me. So I got in touch with my best friend, Eddie, Eddie Danziger, with whom I traded stamps and other stuff like that. And I said, listen, you got to hear this. And I put on the fifth or the sixth. And he looked, he listened. And he looked very puzzled. I said, well, "What do you What do you think? What do you feel?" He said, "Is it a steam engine?"
2: <laughs>
1: well, from then I learned that uh, message does not nec- that music does not necessarily carry a message, or well, the same message uh, to everyone. Well, it was sometime after that that uh, when I got acquainted with. Uh, more sophisticated things, let's say at age 14, I discovered that uh, when my elder sister, who later became a disciple of Landowska, was playing the Beethoven sonatas, am I okay? Yeah. I discovered that the best possible place to listen to Irma playing the Beethoven sonatas was lying under the piano. The sound was fantastic. Well, it was a third discovery, and that was probably around the same time. I discovered that if, when I listened to music, I would conduct at the same time with the record, it was so much more satisfying. And so I marched around the house conducting the music along with whoever, and uh, I found it very, very gratifying. Now, in a deeper sense, what I found was that it's all about motion, and later on I found out that uh, motion and uh, emotion are inseparable, so this put me on to another, another thing, and uh, what did it lead to? I have some notes here. Yeah, that with... I'll I'll skip what I have here and say something else. Later on, I I found through the literature that um, music was capable of uh, releasing, jump-starting, is a better word, jump-starting people from devastating uh, neurological conditions, temporarily, of course. There was something about music that went straight through. And now I'm not going to read all of this, don't worry. I want to read something to you. Was in a late stage of vascular dementia. At a much earlier point, she would succumb nightly to escalating panic and agitation, uncontrolled by drugs. Music, however, could restore a degree of calm. Now she was no longer subject to panic. She was mostly withdrawn and indifferent to music, as well as the presence of intimates, whom she may or may not have still recognized. She rarely spoke. When she did utter a word or two, it was without any affect or any obvious referential content. What about art? And whatever I have to say about music goes also for what I think about art. I think they go through the same way. She had been an avid painter in a twice-run-around gallery. Painters had been among her closest friends. One day she was shown colored illustrations of Monet and abstract paintings of Jimmy Ernst, an old friend. She looked at them all intently for many minutes and with unswerving attention. Asked what she thought, she replied immediately and with the intensity that had once been so characteristic. is really beautiful. Then, more astonishing still, it goes straight through. So what goes straight through? Shall I tell you briefly or shall I tell (laughs) you what goes straight through is the implicit motion, which is what music and painting is all about, not actual motion, virtual motion, and the internal motion of affect. And I have theories, which I won't go into, about what is it about each of these in terms of tension and release. But I can say this, that when the external tension and release buried in the music or the art, goes through to the internal tension and release of affect, there is an at-oneness. There is a unity. And this unity is, at least for some of us, part of the experience uh, of music. There is a oneness in more technical language. There was an increased permeability of the ego boundaries of the person. So there was, I think w- William James put it best when he said the arts, among other things. No, he didn't say it about the arts. He said it about varieties of religious experience. It said, he said they alleviate the solitude of individuation. Not only, uh, it's not limited to music or to art in an aesthetic moment, it certainly is characteristic of times of being in love. And as William James knew better than anybody, it was also characteristic of some varieties of religious experience and at oneness. So what, what kind of a contribution does this experience make, if any, beside the moment? I think it makes a contribution to one's affect regulation and also a sense of one's relationship between self and world. And I think I'll shut up now. <laughs>
3: Um, well, his uh, reaction to Tchaikovsky seems really pure, and um, <clears throat> I keep thinking about uh, how today music um, is much more tied to uh, to popular culture and has a lot to do with uh, marketing, and and so it's. Interesting to see how music is marketed and people respond to it based on how it's marketed to them, rather and it seems to me like a less pure um, connection to it, and I feel that music more than ever is marketed for the listener as opposed to being um, a pure expression. And I even think that popular music of the past seemed more um, Pure, at least emotionally, than it than it does now, and and I think, but I think that the the end result is exactly what he said about it alleviates individuation because I think it's exciting for for people to feel connected to a hit song, um, but sometimes I listen and I think, <clears throat> are they actually listening to the music? But something about because sometimes I listen to pop radio not because I like it, but because I want to see what's happening, yeah. and and um, you know you notice a lot of songs that are about you know going to clubs and stuff like that, and but I think that, that music makes people feel really excited, um, and some I mean for me personally, the way I listen to music is sometimes based on wanting to feel a certain way. Um, wanting to feel, I don't know. Yeah, I guess like less alone in a moment, but also maybe happy or maybe <laughs> contemplative. You know, uh, not necessarily sad, but, but uh, understood by another artist. I also think a lot about how I listen to music. Um, I I prefer to listen to vinyl. Uh, records, for some reason, the sound connects to me more, and and um, I don't know. It just feels warmer and more human. I've talked to to Greg about this a lot, um, but in terms of my own writing, um, that's something that uh, I. Is more of like a habit, I guess, and I don't think so much about how it it uh, necessarily connects. But it's strange when some songs connect to people and others don't, and that's hard to identify. Um, but I feel like I could just keep rambling and talking in different directions. <laughs>
4: Yes, uh, I would like to make a small uh, remark about your friend, for uh, whom...
5: Hear you. Uh,
4: have a microphone? Have uh, oh, just, okay. uh, it's about your friend who uh, did not recognize music in the 5th and 6th symphonies of Tchaikovsky. There is a very small percentage mm-hmm. of listeners for whom uh, music is not available. Yeah. It's um, it's a very interesting condition. It's called amuse, and people just don't recognize anything, and they even okay, they even don't have uh
0: maybe, maybe a little closer to. Yeah.
4: Don't have familiar melodies because they are not able to recognize patterns of music. Uh, because when we listen to music, we actually listen. To musical sounds which have very interesting relationships. Uh, they differ in their perceived tension. It was another very important word mentioned today. So when we listen to music, we listen to pattern of tones. It's like listening um, in in distribution of different levels of energy in tonal field. I don't want to talk too much about it. I, I want to go back to a music. So, a very small percentage of people, they are not able to recognize music. But everybody else is gifted from birth. We all are experts at birth because our auditory system is ready before we are born. We already listen to music before we are born. And even two four months old babies recognize the basic, the most important melodic elements of music, consonant intervals and dissonant intervals. Uh, moreover, the way, the way music uh, conveys information is very simple. We can say it's primitive, it's perceived tension. This is why music is available for everybody, even for people with very serious cognitive problems. We are all able to recognize music. It's incredibly generous art. Uh, by my um, vacation right now, I'm a applied philosopher. I was trained as a classical pianist in Russia, but then I became a cognitive scientist, and it happened that I started emotion, and this is the last area I wanted to study, because it's very difficult, and it's very difficult to talk about emotion in music, but we still can measure something which would help us recognize some of the aspect of this magic which we call music.
6: I, I, the the experience of listening to Tchaikovsky for the first time, um, I, the first thing I thought about was when I was a kid. My my dad was a, uh, a real blue collar guy. He had a bread a bread route delivery guy, and if uh, classical music ever came on his radio, he would always turn. and says, "I hate that suicide music." He would always call <laughs> classical music suicide music. So when I <laughs> so uh, growing growing up. The, the experience I had besides the suicide music was the classical music that he used to play on the, on the, the morning cartoons. <clears throat> but I don't know if any, any people who made those cartoons and produced them understands that that was extremely valuable to somebody who grew up in a house where there was no such thing as classical music. So the first time that I went to a, uh, to a classical concert, it was a Leonard Bernstein uh, Young People's concert, and it was an experience which affected, affected me for the rest of my life because the, the, the beauty of it and the, the intensity of the, at that point it was Carnegie Hall, but I'm not 100% sure I was somewhere about eight or nine years old, but I remember the sound of the, of the orchestra along with the fact that it was a music that I it found very exotic to me, it really carried me into the field that I'm in right now uh, and have been for 40 years, which is audio, uh, audio engineering. Um, but as far as emotion goes, funny in the last few weeks, I had I had an experience which um, really spoke to what we're talking about here. Uh, I had the opportunity to see this new show on Broadway opening up uh, called Motown, and it's just a history of, of Barry Gordy, who founded Motown Records, and. In the beginning of the show, the first scene is the Temptations and the Four Tops. The the, the guys playing those groups have kind of like a competition with each other. And then it just literally plays these songs from really my teenage years. Uh, You know, people on this panel are all different ages, but this is a very musically such a formative time when your your emotions and your connection to music happen. And um, I found myself three or four different times completely tearing up I wasn't sobbing, but my eyes were watering, I was g- getting the chills, and I was, and I was feeling something that I just didn't understand. So after the show, uh, my wife and I uh, went out to dinner with uh, another couple of good friends of ours, and I said to the, to the woman, who's a, her name is Suzzy Roach, she's a, a really a great musician uh, on her own right, and I said to everybody, I said, did anybody find themselves crying? And Suzzy said to me, yeah, a couple of times also. And we do not know what the trigger was. I mean, nostalgia is one thing, and I know that if someone grew up in a different time and never heard that music before and listened to it, they pr- I don't think they would be crying. And it, it also led me back to another situation that happened to me about 15 or 20 years ago in my studio. Uh, a guy that I grew up with uh, had really close friends with him in the eighth grade. He became a Franciscan uh, monk and, had, and still is a Franciscan priest, and we hadn't, hadn't seen each other for years. And we connected uh, on the phone, and he came to the studio, and he brought a cassette with him in in the cassette days, and was an artist, yes, okay great, I like holding the mic though, it felt felt so professional, so uh, it felt much better, so so uh, Kevin brings this cassette of Yanni, and uh, no offense to anyone here, Yanni is what I would uh, my in my way of thinking is kind of an insipid form of kind of new agey kind of music. And he put this cassette in, and the sound quality of the cassette was it looked like it sounded like he probably had like dipped it in a cup of coffee before he came in and then put it in the machine. It was horrendous, and he, and and I was listening to this. I was looking at my speakers, which you know you know it's professional studios, and and I'm just going, oh, this is. Unbelievably horrible. And I turned to Kevin, and he's got the conducting. Things in his hands, pen- pencils, and he's he's doing this and he's crying. Tears are coming out of his eyes, and, and internally I'm laughing because this is the worst thing I ever heard. And to him, which, what he said to me was over. He just said, "I can't thank you enough. That's the most beautiful I've ever heard." That. <laughs> now I'm I'm not I'm not criticizing Kevin, but I'm just saying that this is the kind of thing when we talk about music and emotion, it, it speaks to so much of what music is about: the per- the personal nature of it, the emotional nature of it, what we bring what we bring. To this, you know, in my day-to-day work, I frequently get music sent to me from uh, from from Asia. More and more recently, China, um, Korea, and Japan. And uh, the other engineers and I always kind of have a, you know, it's kind of an internal laugh we have with each other. But the the Japanese rock is completely like another language. I mean it's, it's like well, you don't understand the words, but you really don't understand what they're doing musically. So there's there's no emotion. So yesterday, just yesterday in my studio, I had a Japanese uh, jazz artist, a very very talented woman plays marimba, like this giant marimba, and she saw one of these CDs that I had done that was in my mind was awful and she looked at it and she went, "Ooh, I want this is great, this is great." And she really had to have this and she's a very sophisticated musician. So the relative nature of all this stuff and the emotional connection to me is really fascinating. And you know, I think with the group that we have here, we really have all different. We have different generations. We have different something we're bringing to this. So I'm happy to be here talking about it and see what we come up with. You know. Thank you.
5: Well, I grew up, I would say, bathed in classical music. My father was a concert pianist, so I. Um, I uh, I also started out under the piano, an excellent place to uh, to start and also trying to manipulate the pedals and competing with a younger brother for the mm-hmm. pedals uh, <laughs> and uh, don't remember actually when I started to play the piano, but uh, it just seems like I always did but that's I think probably a very common experience that you you just feel like you all you don't remember when you couldn't play but um, it It was never forced. It was never forced on me, but I just loved it from day one. I played with hands with my brother. It was. Can you not hear me? Not too well. Not too well. And uh, well, anyway, I. uh, Was sort of considering. I I wasn't really considering having a career as a pianist because I knew only too well the downside of it, which is, you know, uh, traveling all the time. And some people love that. Some people don't. It doesn't make for a very stable life, really. And um, uh, and the other part of it was, uh, my generation was the one when I was a teenager. Elvis Presley erupted on the scene, and. so you can figure out where I fit into the scheme of things. And um, it was also a period of time though, in, in, certainly in classical music, women were very little represented at that time, and the thought of being, you know, the reviews would say things like, for a woman, you know, she played pretty well. Mm-hmm. And you, you basically were sort of restricted to, you know, most, most women to sh- Mozart and stuff like that. And um, wow, something just happened. (laughs) The word Mozart. Mozart, right. Um, But I I was... And uh, after a few uh, starts in other areas, I I was briefly a graduate student in comparative literature, um, and uh, I really wanted to go to medical school, but as I was saying before, it was also a period of time where not too many women thought, especially who came from families that didn't have... um, you know, doctors or scientists in the background—they didn't really think of that. But uh, <clears throat> I—that's what I ended up doing, and and i, I always sort of was gra- gravitated towards um, psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. I think in part because I think I'm a reasonably good listener, and, and um, I think there was some some—I uh, can't think of the right word. Um, correlation there between listening to music uh, you know as i did and and listening to people various you know carefully but um, but in, but I've become um, even more. I mean, the other part of it was that since my father was a musician, and my grandfather, my brother, and other family, my mother and sister were both dancers. So I mean, we were really surrounded by music, in motion. My um, and um, the conducting went on a lot at home too. Um, but. Uh, I've I've always been just so passionate about it and about hearing it the emotions that it evokes in me and I um connecting to what you said I f- think that those are very subjective and that that the form the formal aspects of music lend themselves because there's they can't be translated into words I don't think this is working oh, it is oh okay <laughs> um lends itself to projecting whatever emotion and or meaning, if we can try to define that, that one wants to. If you want to feel a certain way, you may know that certain music will evoke that kind of feeling. You'll put it on and and kind of enjoy having the feeling, including sad feelings, including you know some of the negative feelings. Um, but I think the main thing that uh, That I really find um, my connection to music is in actually playing it, making it, making the sounds myself. And um, and I've always played the piano. And as I I I think you said, I took up the cello about six years ago, which was a little bit uh, risky given my advanced age, but. I thought maybe it would stave off dementia, among other <laughs> things, but that, that wasn't really the reason. It was because <laughs> it's not that easy. But um, I always loved the sound of the cello specifically, and I'm always very interested in why people are attracted to certain kinds, certain particular sounds. And I think they are. Um, and also, I wanted to be able to sustain a tone, which you can't do on the piano. Uh, and I could go on and I, I had a religious I'm not religious but music is a, relig- is a religion for me and playing the Bach Suites was another goal that, that made me take up the cello and I could go on and on but I won't at the moment.
6: <laughs> can, I, can I ask you a question? Yes. So, I mean obviously the playing counter your whole life and a cello is a new thing but can, is there a way to figure how you feel? I mean, it's asking to shrink how you how you feel. It's funny, but
5: <laughs>
6: I mean, is there a different emotion that you get from, it, well, from yourself when you play cello? Are you at that level with it where you can actually feel like you're projecting? Well,
5: I, one one of the other things that I didn't that you're reminding me of is the piano is a giant piece of machinery, mm-hmm. you know, wood and metal, and it's you know when you play with other people, you're still not sort of in the music in the same way as if you play a string quartet or whatever because, you know, the thing it has to be away from everybody else and you're usually making the most noise and often in, in classical chamber music you never get a break, you know you the the, the melody instrumentalists, you know, usually have to breathe or, or you know, their arm gets tired but we, we soldier on and trying to turn our pages in between the, uh, you know the, you know 16th rest that they give us. And I wanted to be able to play in like a quartet or in in a group where I vibrate the strings along with the other people vibrating their strings literally. Uh, I mean, you want to be on the same wavelength to use all the Slightly corny metaphors. But the other thing about the cello, obviously, is you can wrap yourself around it. It's a very sensual instrument. It's not as big as the bass, which is a little too big, especially for somebody like me. But the cello is just perfect. It has that shape that allows you to embrace it. You feel it, the whole instrument vibrating when you play it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can't be more in the music for me than that. I'm sure singers would say that they because their instrument is actually their body, literally. But the cello is as close as I felt I could get. Have you found other players? The play- oh yeah. Oh, now okay. now I have. It took me about two or three years to make a sound that I didn't want to run away from while I was making it, but mm-hmm. I'm past that.
4: to uh, infuse a little bit of science in this conversation um, you mentioned dementia. Uh, I, I want to go first to, to children. The recent studies showed that already after six months of studying, children show advantage in, in memorization on tasks which are related to uh, IQ. Uh, we also know today that um, People who studied music in their childhood, they show certain um, kind of age defiance in their cognitive functions at older age. And as a music educator, I would say everybody, uh, don't put aside your desire to study music. It's never late. One of the best cases in my practice as a piano teacher was a 62-year-old beginner, a registered nurse, who became a wonderful pianist just in a couple of years, but she was very disciplined. Did you want to say
3: something? I'm sorry? Did you want to say something? Well, it wasn't directly oh, on oh, okay. something.
1: <laughs> well, but I'll, I'll raise it. Now, anyway, to, to my, my colleague here especially, uh, I, I read a, uh, a, a PhD uh, uh, thesis recently for an institution And it was was about, uh, well, one one specific thing about it. It talked at the end about musical listening and made the point that uh, for a therapist to listen musically was a very big asset. And what the point that she made was that you're listening both globally to the overall and at the same time, for details. And it struck me that this, this is uh, I, I think that I recognize something in that. And I wondered if, from you and your experience as a, as a as a therapist, analyst, as well as a musician, uh, this thought makes any sense to you.
5: It makes sense, but I don't know that I would necessarily be aware of yeah. doing it at the time. And I I, I suspect that most analysts listen, you know, and they they hear repetitions, they hear themes, they hear variations on the themes, Mm -hmm. all of which are musical, you know, Mm -hmm. concepts, and Mm -hmm. I think that, but I I think I'm, um, uh, I enjoy listening in general, so Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the attractions, but Mm -hmm. I also, uh, I think I'm, I like to be aware of the nonverbal aspects of the treatment too, mm. which I think music is more in some ways mm. connected to, and I think also connected to the earliest mm. mother child mm. matrix. And, and I think you raised mm. that uh, mm. point, And I, I feel like that's something that I'm more mm. aware of attending mm. to as yeah. an analyst. The silences,
1: especially. The so silences. Somebody said that the most important part about music are the rests.
4: Yeah, the so spaces
1: true. between right. the notes. Who said that? Mozart. No. Mozart <laughs> only Mozart. <laughs> but, but also the
5: silence yeah. before and yeah. after, yeah. which I think are yeah. not really necessarily yeah. uh, thought about. So, so you listen to yeah. music in order to restore the silence
1: oh. and listen oh. to the silence. I think that's a very, for me, that's a very important mm-hmm. idea.
4: This is a conversation... Uh, Can you hear me? No. Yes. This is a conversation about emotion. And as an educator, I just cannot um, help myself but try to understand where they begin. It's kind of ambitious task, but um, my doctoral study actually addressed this task. Uh, uh, music psychologists, when they talk about music, they say, tonal space. So when we listen to music, we travel in tonal space, and uh, uh, and you mentioned motion. Most important is uh, thing, and actually, uh, my lectures were called "Motion in Tonal Space" as and emotion, motion in tonal space and emotion. It produced by motion and tonal space. Uh, I want to illustrate just a few little things about the origin of tonal space and for this I will need this piano and I'm sorry to bother you but I will need to touch the piano. Yeah. No, I don't mean, I mean, okay. So, in, when, when we listen to music, we listen musical sounds, which actually have a status in this tonal space. Imagine that in music the relationship between sounds is like relationship within a society. When I play a simple scale, uh, the tones of the scale they differ in their frequency and pitch, but most important, they differ in their attraction to first note. This is very unstable, and this is very stable. Uh, I, and I want to play you two very short uh, samples to explain you why music is something like tonal force field. Uh, it's going to be beginning of. Uh, fr- Prelude from Well-Tempered Clavier by Jürgen Sebastian Bach. And it sounds very peaceful. Now with- So what happened, that in this tonal space, we suddenly found ourselves very far away from stability. And this is how we perceive music, as a pattern of stability and instability. When it's unstable, it gives us feeling of tension. When it's stable, it gives us feeling of release. And this is what we listen to music. This is why music talks to everybody, because the morphological principle in music, the way the message, the communication structure is structured. It's very simple. It's understood by everybody. It's either sound harmonious or not. Oh. This is what uh, four months, months later do not like. They like this, they like this, and people don't like this. So the music is made. Uh, from tense and relaxed elements. But the magic begins uh, when those sensations of tension and relaxations are uh, sequenced in time. And the best explanation of this was done by Susan Langer, a wonderful American philosopher. She told that in music we have logic of emotion, not just emotion, but logic of emotion. It's not something we're suddenly frightened of, or we are hungry. No, in music, what is given to us by music, it's a complex aesthetic emotion. It's like living through life again. We live through life again in time. This is only art which is so tightly connected to time. It's humanized time. So when we listen to music, we listen to those sequences of um, tension and releases, they work like triggers for our neurophysiological system. And somehow those triggers, they create a, an emotion in us. Now think how we all react to the outside world. And not only we, let's say some little animal. If something frightening, it would be, it would be tension. If we are, you know, have a nice dinner, Oh, nice friend, talking nice friend, we are relaxed. This is the simplest reaction of the living organism. Tension and relaxation. And this is what music imitates. Tension and relaxation. And those sequences of te- tension of relaxation, they create emotional states. Very strange thing. I think it's really magic.
3: What about music that's all dissonance or all tension? Because some people don't like to hear consonants. They like to hear noise.
4: I think think that's all right. And it was actually um, a movement, kind of aggressive movement in 20th century against the dictatorship of tonality. But the first, yes, it, it kind of coincided with changes in societal structures. Uh, that, um, but what happened when uh, Schoenberg, who was called atonalist to his great irritation, introduced a new system which defined the role of tonality, this tension and release. The system was quite um, strict. And what is interesting, the musicians listen to atonal music. They still are trying to find some points mm. to uh, tie Um, to find some system of reference, because when we perceive this world, we always perceive it in some system of reference. If it's a visual world, it's a Cartesian coordinates. If it's music, it's a scale, just simple scale. But uh, this analysis, it's a wonderful expressive element. Uh, uh, And if you look into, if you hear to music by Bach, He predicted a lot of things. He predicted atonal music, polytonal music, and uh, whole tone scale. You can find everything. But of course, then we had Liszt, who was uh, he was tremendous revolutionary. Wagner, and then in uh, in 20th century Schoenberg and Webern and and, uh, and Berg, and then kind of extreme. It was Karl Haus and Xenakis, who used stochastic music, just random numbers, and he created some. Sounds, some masses of sounds, but not tonal sounds. When we talk in music today, we basically talk about tonal music, about melodies and harmonies, and this music lives in this simple, simple scale.
0: I'm just wondering with, with Jesse and with Greg, uh, in terms of popular music, in terms of, uh, let's say, post-punk music, which is. Um, Which seems to have no integrate, which has no restfulness to it, uh, which has no scale to it, as I understand it. How you would see this fitting in with the kind of classical? As as uh,
6: as we were going through the different different composers and the different uh, elements in in the classical form, I was trying to kind of equate that with my world. and, and and Jesse's world, and, and the people who are involved in, in popular music, and you know, you know and I would say all the way from early '60s up through now, which is a huge yes. body of work now, and it's actually being studied academically. And um, and people bring so much uh, emotion to what they expect from their music. And uh, as far as dissonance, I mean, there are people that go to rock shows specifically to to feel aggressive, to feel more aggressive than they are, to find a safe place for their aggression. If you, uh, you know, I've always been amazed by the, the, the people that come into the studio when I'm working on a heavy metal album. You, you might have noticed this too from the people that you know. These are the gentlest souls that I've met. <laughs> for the most part, the gentlest people that I meet, the most aggressive people that I meet in, in my business are the hyper-intellectual kind of new, new <laughs> the music <poets>. people. <laughs> well, the Well, the, the poets and the people who are searching to be unique are the hardest people. For me, those are the hardest people to deal with. Those are the people with the edge. Those are the most insecure people. They're looking for a special place in the music. But the people who, like, for example, are into uh, heavy metal, they, this, uh, there's a community. There's a sense of community. I was thinking about this before. There was a film that, that many of you, I'm sure, saw, uh, saw recently called Amour. It was a fantastic mm-hmm. film. Do you remember the opening of the film? It's from the stage out into the audience, it's a, a, a classical piano. Did you see the film? Yeah. Fabulous, fabulous oh. film. But the beginning is a, a classical pianist gets on stage, but you don't watch him, you watch the audience reaction. And I swear it's about five minutes of just watching people st- in stillness. And I'm, you're looking at this and you're wondering what is everybody thinking? What is every, each of these individuals doing there? And when I go to a, 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 a to a concert, and my wife and I go to maybe two or three a year, and done not frequent concert goers, to me there's a sense of isolation. I mean, you you're listening and you're you're emoting to the music internally. Rock music is not like that. Rock music is like kind of a, a celebration of the artist and in community with the people who are, who are there, who've also decided to come and enjoy it together. And music will f- th- this type of music will fuse people together. And, th- and this, this is across many genres, I think. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's an appreciation, it's a support for the artist as an individual. Which I'm sure in a, in a classical show, if you really know the performers and you know the cellist, for example, and you go and watch this fantastic cellist, and there's, you know, there's that feeling. But for the most part, I think people go to to internalize the feelings of the music. This is not, Jesse. You, maybe you can speak to this as well. I mean, I, I find that the communal, especially in the '60s, there were there were there were groups in the '60s where if you went to see, for example, the Incredible String Band in 1969, everybody in the show was on LSD. <laughs> and you knew that, and you knew that they were, and they knew you were, and there was a community based around this and this to me is the same th- in in exactly the same thing as if you go to to the Abyssinian Baptist Church on a Sunday and everybody's singing and, and its it's a it's a religious type experience, and I think that um communion exactly and th- th- i I see this when I go out, I see this, it shows and uh to me, it's a very, very interesting thing, and um, because it, when you speak to someone else's music mm-hmm. or they speak to a music that you don't understand, you tend to kind of drift back. You know, you, they mentioned, that, you know, downstairs, we Jess and I were speaking and you know, talking about a couple of artists that maybe some of the folks never heard this. Everybody kind of gets in their little corner. Well, I don't know what they're talking about. I don't know what they're talking about. That's what's great about the, the classics is that we all have at least some knowledge of that, whereas Passion Pit, you know, most of the people in
3: this room probably haven't heard.
6: Um,
3: you, you, know, you know what I mean, though. Right? I totally agree. I, sometimes it makes me uncomfortable when I go to concerts because it seems sort of like a, I don't know, like some sort of hero worship or something. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes I feel that people uh, think they have to act a certain way, especially these days, and even like... Even the, some of the way that they cheer the music is a certain type of sound mm-hmm. that they make, mm-hmm. and it makes me uncomfortable, and sometimes I don't even think they're listening to the music. They're just going to live out the experience that they think they're supposed to, you know, act. They, 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 they act the way they think they're supposed to act. Mm-hmm. I'm being cynical, I think, yeah. but but I do well, feel... Well, you've been around it a lot, and you have I, you've yeah. seen it. Yeah. On the other hand, sometimes, I mean, this is something that's come to mind for some reason, but. Uh, I went to see Randy Newman perform in Central Park once, maybe 10 years ago. And he just played the opening chords of I Think It's Going to Rain Today on the piano. And the woman sitting next to me burst into tears literally, just burst into tears and shrieked and, and put her, her face in her hands. Um, so, I mean, popular music can have an incredible impact like that. Um, I keep thinking about how it is today, you know. And it, again, it, it, it's a friend of mine said to me once. It was it was John Zorn actually. He mm-hmm. said, "I think people." And he he's someone who makes all kinds of music, and for him to say this is 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 pretty interesting. But he said, "I think people just listen to music that makes them feel cool." He said they they just want to hear you know they just want to feel cool, and so they yeah, like. Cool is I don't know maybe maybe I mean this would be really reductionist but maybe you put on classical music because it makes you feel cultured you know or you you feel like I'm being I'm sorry I know that there's more to it than that <laughs> but 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 maybe you feel like you can create your own little world when you put on that music and you listen to it or you play it and then, you know you can shut out the rest of the noise maybe you know and for people who like rock they put on the band they like and they feel like I'm cool too you know.
4: Can you hear me? Yeah, I protest. Uh, first of all, the classical music grew up from popular music. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, when uh, Luther in, Br- in Protestant Germany uh, uh, was working on creating a um, you know, vocabulary of hymns at the churches, he, some of the songs he used had very questionable content just obscene content. And he would say, we should save it from the clutches of devil. Uh, When you think about the best melodies like Schubert, he wrote 600 songs. And the main formula that popular music uses, it's the same. It's the main formula of melodic motion. And this is what uh, Bach's prelude starts with. (laughs) This is all. It's like the law of motion in Newtonian physics. It's three chords in classical music. Three chords, everything as its derivative. So uh, there is not huge difference. It's just some classical music, like, say, Mozart, or Shostakovich, or Tchaikovsky. It's just somewhat more structured and carries a lot of information, which is not, perhaps, easy. It's easy, but it's just different kind of information that, that, um, let's say, heavy metal of uh, of, uh, the the popular music can carry. It's just different levels. But the matter is the same. Mm.
1: Now, you were talking before. You were mentioning the importance of tension. And right after that, you were speaking about the importance of release. Mm -hmm. But that's the whole story. Tension and release. Patterns of tension and release, certain ones, will correspond with patterns of tension and release in different emotions. And I think that's what goes straight through. The correspondence between patterns of tension and release in the music and internally, with certain effects, makes a click. It goes straight through.
4: I also think that popular music perhaps uses rhythms uh, more aggressively and meter and rhythm more aggressively. And it actually just kind of mines on our physiology because we do have this regularity in our lives. So it's, it's rather on the side of uh, rhythmicity than on the side of melodism. But I don't see any chasm between them.
3: Frankly. There's a, uh, a record I was just listening to this morning. Just, I, I just think people might find it interesting. It's popular music. There's a young artist named James Blake. Um, and uh, it's an interesting record because it's, uh, it has all the elements that you're talking about. There are these long moments of silence where you think the song is over, and then all of a sudden the song keeps going. And then, and then it seems to stop again, and then a beat comes in. and Some of it is acoustic piano, some of it's electronic. Um, I think it's uh, worth checking out.
5: I just, I just wanted to say, get back to something you said uh, before about um, you put music and other, art, uh, other arts together. And I, I, I'm not sure if I totally agree with that. I think music, of course I'm biased, I'm sure, but I I think music is different in the sense that first of all it's it's invisible really. I mean, you know, when when it's being played, where is it? You know, it's it's not like something you can touch or look at or anything like that. And it It starts and ends in in time, and therefore uses up time, and in that, in a certain way, sort of mimics what happens to us over time too. So I think there, I I really don't like to lump it in with the other arts, although you know I'm certainly not as knowledgeable about. I'm
1: talking about the aesthetic response.
5: The aesthetic response.
1: The theory of aesthetics, and in the in my theory of aesthetics, (laughs) patterns of tension and release exist in music in their own ways, in their own language, and as they exist in, let's say, painting. Matisse says, a line is not just a line. A line is a stroke against the indifference of the background. (laughs) He said to his students, try to find out where that line is striving to go. He's talking about the dynamics of a visual aesthetics, just as you were talking about the dynamics of the piano. The, when you play the scale, you, you can't leave it at the seventh. It has to go to the eighth. It has to resolve. That's tension and release. Now, it's in that sense
5: that I'm putting well, them all I together. I just have always felt that music is much more embodied, <coughs> em- embodied in, in a certain way because uh-huh. Just because it picks up on our body rhythms, and because it's not visible, it, you know, and it it, it vibrates in yeah. you, you know, um, and I guess to me that makes it I mean And then how do we talk about what it means? We There are no words and, we, and even with painting it seems to or you know the plastic arts in general it seems as if it might be easier to to talk about them in words, mm-hmm. uh, but music is such a challenge mm-hmm. and I, I just this is an aside, but I, I have to say in, in spite of my um, great love for psychoanalysis. I never have really forgiven Freud for being a Viennese Jew who had really little interest in music. Yeah. <laughs> I, I could, I'm sure there's a, there, there was an issue there. Yeah. <laughs> and he also got rid of his older sister's piano because uh, it was yeah. annoying him. Right. <laughs> so I just wanted to get that on the table.
1: <laughs> well, he, he also confessed that, he, that he, he could not bear to stand any art any unless he knew what the meaning of it right, was. Well, and that's beside the point. Uh, right. We're wait. The meaning of it is, 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 the, is the reaction that you have spontaneously when you first hear it. And then all the other meanings that have come in the course of time and the stages that life goes through have different meanings. They're attributed. I'm talking about the spontaneous reaction which I think has to do with patterns of tension and release mm-hmm. in one language of music, and in another language, in visual art, but still tension and release.
4: I have very important things to uh, add because we talk about uh, pleasure of music. So I have to talk about neurophysiology of perception of music. It activates biological reward center, which is also involved in our pleasure uh, of food and sex. And another thing about the... Does, um, does all music do that to certain kinds of music? Pleasurable no. <laughs> music.
0: But, but that's,
4: uh,
5: yeah. that's somewhat subjective.
4: Uh, yeah. And it could, no, no, no. This is what they found. Yeah. It could be music and minor, actually. Mm-hmm. It still activates a biological reward center, pleasure center. And just a, a, a very minor uh, addition to conversation about, um, like, these communions, mm-hmm. when music mm-hmm. is very loud. Um It could be actually dangerous for our uh, auditory system. When I see cars with small children and there's very loud music, it always hurts me because I know that the the poor child uh, and his parents could suffer uh, loss of hearing. In our very delicate organ of corti, in our uh, our cochlea, we have outer and uh, inner cells. And outer cells, like cilia, they work as amplifiers. And if they're destroyed, and they can be destroyed, if there is a consistently uh, loud sound, they cannot be restored. This is why people can start losing their hearing in their 30s, if they work in a very loud band.
6: Well, we, we could have an entire seminar about uh, hearing loss and, and loud. <laughs> I mean, loud is part of the, the world right now. I mean, I have a, the, the audiologist that I go to says when he started, he's in his 60s now, he says when he started, all his patients, so he was in his 30s, most of them were in their 60s he routinely gets people in their 30s now have severe hearing loss. Wow. People are, 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 are using the in-ear mm-hmm. headphones and you know, running and, and spending hours and hours with that pressure on their ears. Cars. I mean, I'm sure everybody in this room has left at least one restaurant. I've left maybe ten restaurants this, you know, in the last two years because you couldn't hear the people on the other side of the table. Yeah. Mm. I mean, that's another you know—that's another whole thing. But, yeah. you know, it, it really makes you wonder, like, why Why is, why is this? Why, why is do people like loud? I mean, some stimulation from loud. I mean, otherwise people would shy away from it. But so many people, I'm not one of them, but so many people need loud. They need the distraction of loud. They need the physicality. I mean, the, the guy who comes next to you in the SUV where you hear everything, Mm-hmm. And your, your car is moving like this, and his car is shaking like this. He's getting something from that. He likes move. He likes his his ass moving in that seat. And there's there's something really important about the f- the physical nature of the, of the of of music for people. But you but know the, the body is the not really adapted like to this. I'm I sorry. Don't,
5: I don't think it was always like that. I think Maybe that's no. A it's, it's
6: it's, it's yeah. well the technology has developed to the point where you can drive around and you can have you know 250 dB in your car. And uh, the restaurants now have you know the ability to have speakers everywhere coming down from the top and the sides. You know that this did. You know, in the fifties and sixties when we grew up, we didn't have that. No, it's an so I feel sorry for the kids.
0: What it what it it indicates uh, with a kind of music which is both loud and where tension predominates over relaxation. I'm talking about the kind of music that that, that you would know, which is very different than Schoenberg. You know, and it. What is it about the times that we live in, the period that we live in, where this seems to be how people are recognizing themselves, in in dysphoria, you know, in in painful music almost, mm-hmm. and a kind of addiction to to, to tension.
3: Well, I, what Greg does dictates a lot of how music is heard, you know, in uh, in, in the, the mediums that we have today, because when people go to have their albums mastered. Um, what Greg does is the final stage of that and he can change the way the music sounds depending I guess on what people want but most people go to Greg because they, they like his aesthetic but, but at that final stage you can make music more aggressive, you can make it louder or you can make it softer, you can make it brighter or you can have more bass and that has so much influence on your perception of the music. Mm. And I, I've had certain albums of mine that I had to have remastered completely because the first take that the mastering engineer, and not Greg, by the way, um, <laughs> that, the fir, that the mastering engineer had did was too aggressive, and mm-hmm. he he just figured, well, I was gonna, you know, I, I wanted to make your music uh, like other people's and, and bring out that you know that sound and, and bring it up, bring the volume up. And when you bring the volume up, you you bring up an aggressive feeling. If you let the volume go down, you know, stay at a little bit of a lower point, then you can have music that breathes more. But most of the records that are made these days, I think they go for the highest level that they can yeah, get.
6: They go for a sound that kind of pu- it pushes forward. Every element kind of becomes equal, so that the, the the feeling is kind of like listening and being like pushed into a wall. Where I mean, J- Jesse creates music different than this, and the, the opportunity that I had to work with him a few times. You know, we try to create music that has when we say dynamics, it means you can feel the, the the variation in the the amplitude of the different instruments. So you have much more of a rhythmic. You have much more of this rather than this, and um, people, uh, musicians. I think I think a lot of musicians have been around music so much, and I think that they almost like. Uh, it's like I'll have one sugar, I'll have two sugars in my coffee, I have six sugars, I'll have sugar, six <laughs> yeah. sugars, and I'll have you know, a, you know, a little bit of a five-hour energy, and a, you know, just it's like, an, like almost like an addiction for excitement, but you kind of lose the, the, the perspective. So you know, I deal with people in a way that I have to understand what is going to. I have to do something that they're going to approve. My, my work is for the artist to get something that he wants. And a lot of these artists need that feeling of excitement. And they also need the feeling that when they play something compared to someone else's music, that it has as much intensity So in in that in that way that intensity to that person could read forwardness, and I've you know I've worked with a lot of musicians lately uh, who are they're almost deaf in in their forties. I mean it's really unbelievable. You know I'll do things and they go like I can't hear what you're doing. It's like I'm been on stage too long, or uh, you know it's uh, yeah it's you know the, the thing that strikes me about this conversation that we're having is how you know our all our different experiences depend on the types of music that we listen to or involved in, but you know, you keep pointing up the universal nature of the experience and I think that's it's a good combination of what is it about the music and different kinds of music and then I'm sure everybody in this room at, at times today has kind of like zoned out and then other people is like, oh yeah, I got that's that's I, I, I understand that. You know. It's a very, very pers- it's a very personal thing our our, our feelings about our music.
1: Well I, I think one one thing a psychoanalyst you may or may not agree about the need for intensity and, and volume is in order not to listen to what's inside.
6: Mm-hmm. Okay. Inside your own head. head. head as yes. A right. To get away, escape. Exactly. Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I
7: agree. I agree
1: We've decided.
2: <laughs> I'm out of it's, it's done.
3: <laughs>
1: Consider it settled.
6: Well,
2: music
3: is
6: its an escape into another world. Into you know, when I was a kid, uh, my father's Sinatra records—that was a visit to, you know, Fifty Second Street in the nineteen forties. You know, I, I had never been to Fifty Second Street. I wasn't born until nineteen forty nine. I never went to jazz clubs, but, you know, to read to hear Sinatra's world and to hear the horns and everything it just creates a, a visual you know, like an imagination. True. And uh, these these are little little climates, little rooms that we walk into with the different musics. And it's Jesse is, is fascinating because you've been doing a lot of international uh, recording. You've been in Brazil, and you write in different genres. Maybe you can discuss a little bit of how you you know you kind of write <coughs> in folk genres and you in, know right. in,
3: in more rhythmic uh, you know Latin American and South American. Well, I mean, what I was thinking of, actually, was because we've been talking so much either about classical music or popular music, mm-hmm. but just about, uh, I don't know, maybe more indigenous music or folk music and how that functions, and, and also tonally how that functions, because a lot of that music has nothing to do with the scale that we've been talking about at all. Um, and, uh, and, and yet, it can reach a level of sophistication Mm-hmm. E- equal, if not more, to to to, uh, to the Western scale, and and that has those tensions and releases are completely different, um, and so that sort of calls into question that basic feeling of what you know uh, of the the human the universal human response to sound, because actually in other places it's not the same.
5: But, but it seems to me that it's culturally determined all over the world. I mean. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
4: <laughs> there was a study recently uh, with people listening to music from different cultures, exactly what you just heard mm-hmm. about, and they found that uh, there, is do- there are, there are dominants people respond to, it's just tiny differences, yeah, the cultural differences are dead, but still the most important things are captured, so something about music, it's, it's really universal language. Somehow it reaches everybody, even if it's kind of very distant culture. It still arrives to us.
0: But I think what what you're suggesting is that the patterns of tension and release are very different, and there are all mm-hmm. kinds of cultural mm-hmm. things that yeah. going into them. But the the basics that must be there in every culture that is a way of, of kind of integration, yeah. which human beings can't live, can live without. Live Absolutely,
3: differently. Because we listen to. We're very used to a, a pretty even meter, but if you listen to music from other parts of the world, you can't even tell where it begins and where it ends. Um, it doesn't seem to have a meter. Some of it, um, and and it uh, furthermore seems at times to be speeding up and slowing down at the same time. And people can they do this just naturally? That's how they play, and that's how they hear things. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, sure. the the uh, the response to music, whether no matter what kind of music, I- is is universal. Yes, people are moved by it. In fact, I would even say perhaps they're more moved by it in some some indigenous cultures because it's more, you know, it's it is in fact religious. Um,
5: it, it's ritualistic. <laughs> but i think you have to be exposed from a very young age to whatever kind of music to really appreciate it and, and have emotions in response to it i mean i think if you haven't grown up hearing classical music you know you're with people who love it you know that in that setting you why would you Or any other kind of music,
0: more mysterious than that, because I I keep thinking of what you were saying before about you and your father. He could listen to something and couldn't hear it at all. Uh You listened to something and uh, you know it it moved you very, very much, Uh and and is a kind of mystery as to what it is that even with you that allowed you to hear something Mm -hmm. and know. That it spoke to you and that those rhythms were responding to some difference, mm. probably between people, between effective organizations mm-hmm. that people have. What that has to do with education and class is very complicated. Yeah, it is
6: complex. I mean, I remember in the 60s when you'd meet somebody, you know, I was in my 20s, and, and you'd meet somebody 60 years old and go, like, I love the Beatles, they would say. I said, Wow. How, how does this person who's 60 years old like the beatles you know when you know this is like in the 60s you'd very rarely meet someone and then they would say some oh, i love that song michelle or you know one of the real <laughs> melodic ones you know but there's there's a cultural barrier to cross and i'd be curious in this room how many people have listened to hip hop then all of a sudden it's like, you know, that, this, that, uh, that's that one hip-hop song. I really like that one. You know, I mean, how many people are open to that? Or how many people just as soon as they hear the genre, they hear the, the style just, whoop, that's not mine, It's not mine, just close right up. And you know, no matter what the lyrics are, no matter how socially relevant they are, no melodically, just like, that's not my music. I'm not going there. Or is know? there
0: certain music that we can't hear? We literally yeah. can't hear. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to take some, t- if there are questions that uh, people uh, would like to ask the participants, uh, please and go over to the mic and uh, you could just say who you are. And... You want a name, is
8: that it? Sure. Okay. Deb Rogers.
4: <laughs>
8: I appreciated hearing mm-hmm. that Freud had no experience <laughs> of music. I think. Well, had an experience. Well, like. he, he rejected it. I, and I find that it's a mystery. Is anyone writing about it? I think that's phenomenal. <laughs> Do we know
5: if anyone is writing about it? I, I think it's been, I mean, I must have read it somewhere. Do I have to so. look at Google for
8: that something? <laughs>
9: Well, what we were talking about was uh, people being, you know, locked in with, with, with genres that they wouldn't would listen to, wouldn't listen to. I was thinking of the movie Mr. Holland's Opus, where he played a classical theme. There was, uh, you know, you know uh, the minuet and G, but uh, they knew it as as the toys, as Motown song lovers could and sometimes. It can, uh, and sometimes something like uh, series like that. Sometimes you just take one song, sometimes to uh, one little piece that seems just like, a little bit different, when somebody might start to embrace it when they didn't embrace it before, because it's uh, uh, because it just touches it touches them, you know. And um, I know that also. Wow. I mean, uh, a lot of a lot of the British rock in the '60s did borrow from cla- yeah. you know uh, from madrigals, from cla- classical music, or from um, uh, you know uh, American blues. You know, just you know, kind of, a bit of like a, like a hybrid you know, thing going on. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. So like, so it's, so it's funny So, uh, Sometimes, thinking uh, uh, music can grow over time. So, and uh, I guess this, is, this really is that whether there's some sense that any particular genre is going to be monolithic, and it's not really not because there's always going to be some variation within any within any uh, type of music, and there could be one particular song that. Somebody heard that from, from either of a group that the, they said, they may, may want to give them uh, consider giving it, uh, a particular kind of music a sec, another listen, just give it another chance.
6: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it, you know the, the, the modern. Uh, hip-hop music uses samples from all different sources, from classical sources, jazz sources, you know, you hear it all because, uh, you know, the technology now allows you to c- kind of construct. The music is not performed as much as constructed, so now it's being constructed yeah, let's, from let's, all different... Yeah, that's
9: the kind of, in a way, that's kind of the sad thing when you talking about tension release, uh, how the only variation is, uh, in, in volume is that it just keeps increasing, but there's no decreases, no in and out, like just, it's just increases louder and louder and louder and that's, that's, well, that's the tension part, but where's the release part coming in? Like question you know, I mean, how do how to get beyond it? Just you know, where, where, when does the you know, when did the relief come in? When you keep hearing throbbing mute in clubs like uh, that's why I don't, don't go to the clubs because uh, I don't think I could handle all the uh, that, that throbbing po- mm-hmm. and pulsating. I think just, they take, you know, they take uh, you out uh, the throw me off for about four measures.
6: Thank you.
2: I've never been raised on classical music,
6: just like there was
2: never a book in my house. But anyway, um, I was raised, if anything, on popular music. So my question is this. Don't you think it's easier to like popular music than classical music? I'd like especially direct this to you, because you are just opposite of my background. And because the words give you direction, and I think would help, also, in some of the things you've been talking about. The words themselves, forget the emotion of the words, which I think are terrific often, uh, but don't you think it's easier to like popular music because it comes with words?
5: I I think most of the music in the world, I think, does come with words, um, actually. And I, I, I think that's that may be true and but i I've, I've always particularly been fascinated by non uh, m- music that doesn't have words just because it's so it's so uh, mystifying what it is what well, it's, it's, so it's it's so eloquent and it, and yet with no words and, and how do we understand what the impact on us emotions
4: but also ideas
5: I mean, to my knowledge, of speaking about Freud again, the o- the only two references I recall in his work about m- to music were both operas, because one was an Offenbach one, and another one was Don Giovanni by Mozart. Because there was a plot and words and everything else that he could talk about.
1: I'm Jim Rubens, uh, an analyst. I'm a member of a group that works with people with brain damage. We work. Uh, psychotherapeutically and psychoanalytically. And we had been in touch with the man uh, who is both a psychotherapist and suffers from aphasia. He had, a, he had a stroke. His name is Harvey Alter. And he runs support groups for aphasics. And I've heard him speak. He mastered much of his aphasia by singing to himself and he could retrieve the word with the help of the
4: music. Mm. May I add a little bit? Uh, There are groups right now in melodic therapy. They actually work with people with um, damage to their speech center. First they start with just a couple notes around and teach them to say their names, then simple phrases. And gradually they uh, restore uh, speech. And what is interesting, they restore speech center in opposite hemisphere, which was not damaged.
10: I'm Henry Earle. Thank you for a very interesting discussion. Uh, Rubenstein, uh, Korsakov. What about genetics? What about studies in people, who, humans, who are either preverbal or postverbal? Uh, you may have noticed it, but uh, from Kyoto, uh, a group of researchers recently reported three subjects in which they studied sleep and dream what they regard as dreaming. Uh, in the first stage of sleep, uh, they would awaken these subjects and compare the functional MRI to the objects that they dreamt about, uh that they recalled. And they got to the point where they could find a 60% correspondence between the uh functional MRI images and the objects that these subjects recall. Now, it's three subjects and it's early days, but uh, I suspect there are genetic factors in this. Uh, I mean, one possibility is that Vienna was burned out that after (laughs) Beethoven and and Mozart, uh, what was there left for poor Freud? The other possibility possibility is that there are strong genetic variations in uh, the response to music and I just wondered whether there have been some studies or there are being some studies underway to study this, uh, especially in very young and
4: the very old. Uh, okay, I, I'm not going to give you a direct uh, answer, but kind of in, uh, indirect. First of all, we know that Bach family was so huge. And they were so successful that the very word Bach became a synonym for musician during his time. And on <laughs>
10: QXR,
11: 11 <laughs> days yeah. Non-stop. yeah. Another
4: thing, uh, uh, some 15 years ago, there was a great discussion. if. Um, if, there is, uh, if uh, differences in brain structures in musicians as compared to non-musicians are related to genetic component. However, during last few years, when uh, there were around several longitudinal studies with children, it showed that uh, the brain changes are related to music experience. They are related to um, greater thickness of corpus callosum anterior part, which means greater greater bilaterality, which perhaps means better cognitive functions at old age, their compensation. Uh, There are other changes um, in, for example, in uh, in arcuate uh, uh, fascicules that connects auditory uh, areas with motor areas, and so on. So when, what I want to emphasize, please start making music. Yeah. Every day, literally every day, new studies arrive which say, which say it's very beneficial. Just today I read a study which was published this year that people who studied music, they, they are better on motor tasks, not only like on memory tasks, on mo- motor tasks. Compared with people who never studied music.
5: Well, would that be true if someone who took up drawing or painting at an older no. age? No, no, Music, just. Music. And, and
4: my explanation to it is that we are dealing with such a, um, integration of different modalities. We have vision, hearing, motor. It's really affecting. Mm-hmm.
2: Thank you for coming today. Um, I'm not in your field. So uh, the terms I use may be the wrong ones, but perhaps you can help. My name is Joseph Cadu. Um, I read a review of a, of a recent book by Oliver Sacks that had to do with um, hallucinations. And the point was made that with advances in recent brain imagery, they found that people having hallucinations, that the part of the brain that was activated was quite different than uh, the part of the brain that's activated during dreams. And the part of the brain that's activated, activated <coughs> during dreams is that part which has memories as its function. And the part that's motivated for hallucinations is that part that not being in your field I'll call pre-perceptual or before there's the naming of something. What distinguishes us from other species, our capacity to name things. But the moment we do, we eliminate all the possibilities for what it could be otherwise, and there's a distancing. And so here's my question. Uh, And also as a musician, um, I mean, just someone who's played music, I found that once I master the notation of something, I can go back to that pre-notation state of a motive or what I'm, in doing improvisation that, that there's a return to something more basic not something more advanced so here's my question is there anything in brain imaging or neuroscience that suggests that musicians that the part of the brains that is employed for musician playing is different for a musician listening or for a regular person listening uh, uh,
4: they are not as uh, as kind of you know you're talking about dreams and hallucinations what i'm not what i'm going to talk it's much more mundane for example in musicians uh the auditory uh areas like recognition of sounds they little they do a little bit differently than non-musicians and also their perception of music is more uh, left side activated because it's more analytical in musicians uh they're, they're more related to musical structures but what is interesting is that responses, per se, they're about the same. It's the, yes, there are differences in, in uh, white and gray matter, musicianship related, but responses, emotional responses, uh, are not differentiated in musicians and non-musicians. A couple of little anecdotes and then a question. Um, I used to hate hip-hop music and then I started taking hip-hop dance classes and now I really like hip-hop music <laughs> and I mean that quite seriously. I wasn't able to access any of the emotion of it or any of the music of it until I tried to do it and then I could understand the vocabulary and the feeling that they were uh-huh. using. You know. And Similarly, um, I went recently to an Icelandic music performance where somebody was really – the performance was this on the computer. And there was this kind of wall of sound that was produced that was the concert that we were at. And so there was very little motion involved in that. And so I was just wondering if you could comment a little bit on motion and its relationship with music, both in terms of how you take things in and out of the music to create those feelings, but also in terms of the neuroscience systems, in terms of overlap of perceptual modalities. You know,
6: I can't speak to the neuroscience because I don't know much about it. But I, I, I do know that in, uh, in my work, uh, I do find that my body is always moving in in, in the work. Um, people comment sometime, and you know, my foot is either tapping or I'm kind of I'm just kind of I'm kind of reacting to it. I can't. I can I can totally understand that that the reaction to the hip hop because you you know you're really connecting with it at that point. You really it's it's it's, it's 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 obvious that the music is a physical music. It's it's and. You know, I, I, I haven't been to some of these big, gigantic raves that, that that you see that people are having now. But there's, you know, sometimes you have thousands and tens of thousands of kids, and the music, you know, it's just a pulse. Of, it's a pulse of physical movement, you know. And uh, again, you know, you know, you don't you don't see much movement when you go to Carnegie Hall and you go to a, a <laughs> classical concert. But there's a there's a different there's a different thing there's a different thing going on there. So I mean, I, I personally. In, in my work, and I, you know, I only do the the end product of the work. I don't create the work. You know, Jesse's a record producer. He creates the work from, and also a songwriter, so he comes up with the idea for the song and then creates an environment for the song to exist. And then in my work, I kind of take that and I try to enhance whatever emotion that I'm feeling. And over doing it for 40 years, I kind of can connect with with the, the other creative person who's, who's come up with something I can enhance what he's trying to do. But um, I think physical, physical is a big part of what you come up with when you produce a record, right?
5: I think, that, I think the classical audiences have been sort of tamed over the, over the century. Because they didn't used to be so passive. That, mm-hmm. And I certainly am not. I always sit in the back row, because I can't sit still during the mm-hmm. music, no, and I don't want to be. I've been actually kicked out once. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't making any sound, but I I was. What were were you doing
6: when you got kicked out? Pardon (laughs) me? What exactly were you doing when you got kicked out? This I want to hear. Well,
5: I was just asked to, you know. Oh, I was shushed and asked to leave if I couldn't contain myself. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little, uh...
12: I
1: (laughs) I feel exactly the same way, that I think it's barbaric, that you I have to agree. sit at a concert and not move.
5: It's ridiculous. It's impossible. A, and I have,
1: I have a private theory that one function of the conductor, mm. aside from his relationship to his orchestra, is that he is the symbol. For all the motions that you want to make, right, <laughs> <laughs> and you clap as much for having allowed, allowed him to, by, by proxy <laughs> <laughs> to express for <laughs> 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 uh, I,
4: I cannot say anything about from the point of view of neuroscience, but I want to say, some, say something from point of view of uh, social cultural. That the cultural music does um, express gesture, and with time gestures change. So when you think about Amoniet in Mozart, you know you it's very easy to imagine, you know, uh, ladies with crinoline, yes. And it's very different today. So uh, it's I think it's wonderful that you you found uh, uh Hucup. Yes.
7: <laughs> okay, my name is Herb Klitzner. Um I found the, probably the most satisfaction in listening over the last 30 years been to what broad thing called alternative music, and within that uh, you have ambient music, and that is peaceful, and it doesn't go very far, and yet it's very rich and it, it's shifting and changing, and uh, I just thought it should be mentioned here, and I just wanted any reaction to either you know that or, or uh, alternative music more broadly as as uh, trends that have been in the society that are. Uh, meeting points that anyone can listen to, and yet you know have substance.
6: Uh. So that's for the most part. Is uh, your ambient music is without without lyrics? This is this is, or, or maybe like Gregorian chant kind of music, or the. I, know, I meant without lyrics, you without a, a, lyrics, Brian Eno yeah.
7: kind of thing, yeah. things.
6: Follow that follow there. Well, you know, again, you know, there's so many individual. I mean, that's that's an excellent. Thank you. That's an excellent example for a, a music which brings another whole set of you know. Of emotions, and you know this is very medita. I mean, that's that's meditation. I mean, I think we've all had the experience of going to a to a massage or whatever, and somebody puts something on, and it's like, and you go like, well, no, that's not going to work for me because I know, you know. And could you put something? So, you know, that's. But that brings you emotionally when you listen to to that kind of music.
7: Where do you get with that emotionally when you listen to the ambient music? It opens me up, and it relaxes me, and then. I mean I in making music mixes which I've done have been broadcast in on Estonia radio um I I uh, alternate in, in a, a larger scale tension and release using let's say an ambient piece and then something that's very different and I get a reaction from listeners that way that keeps things fresh and moving and they're alert and uh and so everything I do is eclectic with four or five genres you know within an hour and a half uh, music mix mm-hmm. There's, there's, well, r- listening can be rich, richer than it really is on on radio ordinarily. So you have a show, you you, you have a uh, I, I, I did ten years ago, uh, it, uh-huh. was, it was periodic, special occasions, but about 12 of them mm-hmm. from about 2001 to 2003 and uh, I was uh, challenged in a very constructive way, taking the 9-11 experience which happened in the middle of it and so I was known already to the audience mm-hmm. and, and finding this, this kind of thing that would from Estonian culture and from American culture would, would represent tensions and releases and uh, that you're in a safe place, uh, ultimately. And, and it was, the program was repeated after a couple of weeks from the, the response. Mm-hmm. So well, that's great. Uh, yeah. Thank you. What kind of music was he referring to? Estonian music? Well, well, well there, there is, there's uh, music in Estonia. It's classical. It's, it's uh, a vocal by uh, Velio Tormis. Uh, especially in other composers, he had a piece called um, "Curse upon Iron," and I played that and there 's a d- destruction that takes place in that, and that represented for me the tower falling, which i 'd witnessed myself from some blocks away, and I helped work on the foundations for the center, I had helped to design. Uh, I made a computer model of it in 1966. For, uh, I worked at the Port Authority. And then so it was a life cycle of a building that I was witnessing. And now it was coming down. But actually, the, only, the one thing that, that remained that was not damaged was, was that foundation wall. But it was waiting for a new building to, you know, to fill it and connect. So I did
11: a program on that. Sure. Yeah. Hi, I'm Alexi Kaltrakis. I'm an analyst. Um, I think everybody's doing a great job doing something that Elvis Costello said was like uh, writing, you know, talking about music is like dancing about architecture. <laughs> it's, it's very difficult to do. Um, but uh, I have a developmental question about music, both for the analysts, the musicians, and the uh, cognitive scientists. Um, you know, I think we've all alluded to and, and seen how musical taste changes over time. Uh, the song that moved us when we were five, you know, a different song would do that at 15 and if, you, if I go to the opera and I look around at the median age, I know that uh, the, all those people there were not at the opera when they were 30. So it, it the taste changed over time. <coughs> I'm curious, in, in other fields, in, in psychoanalysis, we sort of privilege the first five years of life as determining so much that happens afterwards in language uh, so much we believe that happens, needs to happen in the first years of life. Is there a science of music development uh, which would take into account both the cognitive uh, changes and sort of receptivity at different ages that we have? Also take into account the uh, aspect of community and mass experience at concerts and so on. and uh, other things like when we're older, I mean I used to listen to The Clash's first album ad nauseum loud and I can't do that anymore. <laughs> uh, and I listen to other things now that I never would have listened to because they were too wimpy when I was 20. So um, what are the kinds of things, is it, you know, is it possible to put together some developmental idea of, of how we experience music?
1: One of the pros has
4: to take it. Um, okay. You know, we, uh, I, I, can, I can talk from, from a perspective of a piano teacher. So you have children. Uh, they are coming to study piano. And some of them are so incredibly perceptive. A child at seven, at eight, seems understands everything about music. It's universal language. The universals, melodic universals, are very simple. And they are given to us by nature. But they understand uh, the emotional content in an incredible form, incredible way. Uh, I, I find it very difficult to discuss how it's related to age um, and to development of taste. Uh, I only can tell you that we all are very sensitive to music. Uh, for example, um, in my study, I found that people, n- non-musicians, and I did this study in the study in the heart of Texas, and it was multi-ethnic group, people from around the world. And they recognized differences between Romantics and the first Viennese school. When I saw the results, I could not believe my eyes. I had um, uh, melodic stimuli, short musical phrases. I, I selected them from musical compositions, played them, and they listened. I had very different task for them. But one of the byproducts of this study was the discovery that people basically no training in music. They are very sensitive to the finest details of music. They recognized, like for example, they put Schubert with romantics and with classics. And this is a very esoteric knowledge which is, is, for example, it's known by uh, people studying piano at Moscow Conservatory that you can take Schubert as a classical composer or a romantic composer depending on the structure of your performance. But it's not common knowledge. So when I saw the loading plot with this (coughs) results, it was striking. We all are gifted for music. But just, just listen. Just listen. Just enjoy.
3: I think, though, that, that uh, the thing that you're speaking about, specifically of getting older and having different tastes in music, I'm not. It seems more like what you, that your personal needs for music change more than your taste changes. Because I'm sure, I know for myself that the records that I usually, the records that I didn't like as a kid, I still don't like. Because I, I go back sometimes, and I think, <coughs> excuse me, was I wrong about that record? Because people really still talk about this one record. And I know when I was 16, I didn't like it, and I returned it, or I sold it, or whatever. And I'll go back and listen again and think, nope, I, I didn't like that. I still didn't like it. Um, sometimes I go back, and I realize I was wrong about things. but. I think it's more that as you you know speak uh, what you said specifically instead of wanting to go to say a, a clash concert you would want to go hear a symphony I think that's more cultural and more about um just where you are in your life it's more just to to simplify it more of a pleasant evening to go and 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 go to a a beautiful concert hall and listen to some beautiful music and have dinner rather than go to a, a crowded club and crowd your, you know, and, and get knocked around by a club and have your ears blown out. It's just, but, but in terms of the actual music, I wonder how much actually it changes. I know that, uh, you know, people who are young, they, when they hear things for the first time that they were never exposed to, they, you know, someone who may like Beyonce, but never heard Aretha Franklin suddenly hears Aretha Franklin and says, wow, you know, that's amazing. Um, I, I think people can like music at any age. It's just more about what their personal needs are, maybe, or what they want from it.
5: And what they're exposed to.
3: Yeah.
8: Hi, I'm Rena Kizursky. Uh I'm a music supervisor for documentaries. And uh, what I've been hearing today is <coughs> two parts. It's mostly Western music. It's mostly classical or popular a few people have spoken about indigenous music, and I think it's important to stress that in much of indigenous music, both dance and the sound of music go together. And that tension and release that we, you spoke about earlier today really has to do with the tension and release of physical embodiment and physical action. Mm-hmm. And when we sit in a concert hall, some people may sit in the back and get <laughs> rhythmically excited but most of us are not allowed to dance and or don't wouldn't even think of it in carnegie hall but going to a a jazz concert or a rock concert somehow permits you to release that and get out in the aisle and dance around and i i think we need to reflect a little bit about how important uh it is necessary for bodily, physically, to feel the excitement about music.
12: Hi, very interesting conversation. Uh, my name is Raul Rafael. I'm, a, I'm an artist, visual artist, and also musician. And um, music has a very deep uh, scientific basis. Cymatics, uh, uh, which is the study of uh, the patterns that are made, through music frequencies has shown that uh, sound has an organizing power. And also there's a very deep metaphysical aspect to music. Uh, We see that in religions throughout the world, throughout history. Now, Dr. Rose, you touched upon, you said the uh, music alleviates the solitude of individuation, which I think goes to the very core of what communication, coming together as one, that music allows. And, and I think that has to do a lot with the, I think that uh, Ms. Krenn has mentioned the neurophysiological uh, nature of music. But also to you, mentioned the fact that music creates uh, uh, an emotion and emotion tonal space, which is, I think, at the heart of communication and of the alleving of this uh, alienation, this wanting to come as one, as actually <laughs> we're doing right now. I think that. Human beings want to come together, communicate, commune, mm-hmm. and so could you talk a little bit more about this uh, and possibly this connection between creating uh, emotion and uh, emotion in tonal space and the alleviation of uh, of the uh, what did you say the uh, alleviation of the solitude of
1: individuation? Yeah, I was quoting William James, so I wish I wish I had said it, but he said, you know, "I'm old, but not that old." <laughs> Uh, I want to say only, only, I I thought I wanted to say one thing about it. Um, No, it just just escaped me. I'm I'm having a senior moment. Um, Yes. Um, One thing I could say is that as, as an analyst, one of the first things an analyst would think about this is that this at-oneness that's created by music, self and other merge, probably in some very, very dim way recalls the very earliest moments of life, the very earliest years of life, which were wordless because language has not yet come. And uh, this would be the symbiosis of the mother, nowadays could be father. a child relationship. So on some very, very deep level. Now one, one difference between present analysis and the analysis that I was brought up on is that we would find far more significance in the present and recent and cultural contributions rather than immediately go back to what, you, what, do, you, what do you remember about being in your mother's arms? But that doesn't mean that isn't important. That's that's the earliest basis of wordless understanding and security and loss, loss of the sense of self because you are safe in this, what we call, holding environment where you're being held. Does that come close to answer your question?
7: Yeah, yeah.
1: In some early early poetry, I read someplace that uh, uh, the love song, in some culture which I've forgotten about, the the words, the highest form of love you could express would be to say to your partner, Oh, I. (laughs) There is no difference between self and other. Oh, I. It's like pretty, pretty narcissistic, huh? But it's the fusion I'm talking about. The fusion, the oneness.
0: For one more comment, and
8: then we're going to have to stop. Hi, my name is Amalia, and I have a question about laughter and recorded music. Um, since I was a little kid, i have always amused by singers who would just burst out into laughter. And as I've gotten older, I realized that it wasn't always, ha-ha, that's funny, but more ironic or a commentary. I'm thinking of, like, Bill Withers, Hell Up in Harlem, and he ends the song, ha-ha, ha. ha, ha Ha- Harlem you know hell up in Harlem and so commentary about Harlem and thinking about that and so I haven't fully come up with a conclusion about this laughter and so that's why I'm here to get some thought about what kind of emotion might be tied ty- well, there's all kind of theories about why we laugh in general but I'm wondering about in recorded music and some of your thoughts about that
3: Well, I don't know. I just think of this. Elise Regina, she's a Brazilian singer. There's a song where she bursts into laughter in the middle of a line. And there's Bob Dylan songs or early recordings where he starts laughing, and he's responding to his own lyrics, laughing at them. I mean, to me, it just always reflects a very natural moment in the music um, from artists who are so good that they're so inside the moment of, of the song and inside the meaning of the song that... That it's almost as if they're not uh, singing it themselves, and, and they they have a like almost an objective sort of uh, reaction to the music. Um, but otherwise, I never really thought about it that much. But I have noticed it, and I always like it when I hear it.
6: And the only thing I can say is,
3: there's a few times that I've seen uh, live performances where somebody
6: has a laugh that laugh better be good because if it's not good it's just it destroys the whole song it's got re- <laughs> <laughs> to really be sin- it's got to really be sincere so that's a hard thing that's a very difficult uh, you know uh, only a really temp- I'm sure Bill Withers could do it but there's not, not too many Bill Withers around
0: I'd like thank to you. thank the whole panel thank you for-